I don't think hydropower is the golden ticket. If I had a dam in my backyard, in my physical backyard, um, the impact of it, you know, a run of the river dam might not be that significant. But when we think of these mega projects, it's really important to think about hydro in the context of First Nations territory and not thinking about hydro in terms of these remote, untouched landscapes that are open for extraction without consequence. I'm Jay Familietti. On this episode of What About Water? A big damn problem. Our quest to find new sources of cheap, clean energy led us to a technology that changes landscapes, one that forever alters the lives, cultures, and livelihoods of indigenous people and their communities. The force of flowing water was something Mesopotamians discovered thousands of years ago. Build a structure across a river or stream, and you can use the force of that water to irrigate crops. You can siphon off water for washing and drinking. Today, dams are some of the biggest human-made superstructures on the planet. Humans have erected roughly 57,000 large dams, including hundreds of giant ones dams towering over 150 meters. Like China's Three Gorges Dam, a dam so huge that astronauts can see it clearly from space. It took two decades and tens of billions of dollars to build, and it uprooted more than a million people. By one estimate, up to 80 million people have now been displaced by dams. We keep building them, and that number keeps climbing. As our producer, Farah Akhtar, reports, it's the indigenous people, communities, cultures, and ways of life that find themselves living in the shadow of dams. Over time, these are the people effectively being submerged. This place is, it's hard to put it into words. This is where my family is from, has been from since I don't even know. We have such a connection to these lands and these waters and this way of life. Amy Norman is a proud Anuk woman, born and raised in Happy Valley Goose Bay in Labrador on Canada's East Coast. And my family ties are to Northwest River and Maine in Nunatsiavut on my dad's side and on my mom's side to the Bonifesta Peninsula area in Newfoundland. Inuk families like Amy's have lived along Labrador's mighty Churchill River for generations. My great-grandfather, you know, had a little tilt, had his little cabin on this trap line. I know where it is because I've been there and now it's underwater. It's been underwater for decades, ever since a mega hydroelectric project was built between two provincially owned utility companies, Hydro-Quebec and the Churchill Falls Labrador Corporation. It flooded roughly 6,500 square kilometers of ancestral Innu territory. 
There was nothing quite like it in North America at the time, and it's still one of the largest hydro stations in the world. And it wasn't the last. Construction crews returned in 2013 to start building the Muskrat Falls Hydroelectric Dam. A third one is on the books called Gull Island, all on the same river. So much history and so many, you know, centuries and centuries and millennia of just, yeah, just underwater, gone, destroyed. And for what? Hydroelectric projects like these come with big promises. A guarantee we'll have enough electricity into the future. In fact, the International Hydropower Association, which describes itself as the global voice of sustainable hydropower, says modern hydropower projects are helping our planet make a clean energy transition and hit our net zero targets. It all seems so hopeful. won't have to burn coal, and we'll have clean, green, renewable energy. But let's be clear, we're not talking small, run-of-the-river projects here. These are massive. How do I describe the scale of these things? It's If you had, I don't know, like five city blocks that were just entirely made of cement, like vertically up several dozens of stories. It's just, like, enormous. The Churchill Falls Generating Station is one of the largest underground hydroelectric power stations in the world. On average, it generates enough energy each year to power 10,000 North American homes, non-stop, for 365 years. Churchill Falls has this kind of complex, complicated, weird history with the province of Quebec. Essentially, they own the vast majority of the power coming out of that dam, even though it's in Labrador in our province. That's because of an agreement signed back in 1969 when Churchill Falls was first built. The deal gives Hydro-Quebec the right to keep most of the profits. And when you're generating about 34 billion kilowatts of energy every year, that's a lot of money. So we get, you know, a bit of power and we got this really one-sided agreement where it's bypassing all of these communities on the coast of Labrador who still run entirely on diesel and they're not getting any power out of it. So it's extremely frustrating that we take all of the risks and we see none of the benefits. These risks disproportionately affect Indigenous communities. Research from Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health shows the vast majority of existing and future hydroelectric projects in Canada sit close to Indigenous communities. That's not even taking into account the people living downstream who are affected. And then there's this. The research found 90% of potentially new Canadian hydroelectric projects are likely to increase concentrations of a dangerous neurotoxin called methylmercury in nearby food chains. 
it bioaccumulates in fat, meaning it builds up and it builds up and it builds up um, in fat stores. The small itty-bitty planktons, it gets in there. Fish eat the plankton. Bigger fish eat those fish. Seals eat those fish. We, as Inuit, eat the seals. We're so high up the food chain at this point, and seals are so fatty, that bioaccumulation magnifies what was, you know, a relatively low level of mercury, it magnifies into really, really dangerous levels. And higher levels of methylmercury are associated with serious health problems, like increased risks of cardiovascular disease and neurodevelopmental delays among children. I've seen, you know, cousins of mine have to go to the hospital because of mercury poisoning just from eating, you know, our traditional foods off the land. For communities where food is already hard to get and expensive, being cut off from traditional food sources can be devastating. So it's harmful, you know, physically and structurally to our body. It's harmful emotionally and spiritually to who we are and culturally because it's cutting us off from our ways of life and and living as our ancestors did. The sound of the rapids is kind of a cultural grounding. The sound of the rapids is not only part of the human cultural construct, it's part of the identity and migration and the audio landscape of different animal species. That is the sound that defines every moment waking and sleeping of someone's life. Massive hydro projects, the turbines, the dams, they alter landscapes in ways we can't even imagine. When animals travel through territory, they rely on sound. And so to change the sound can significantly impact all of these animal populations in ways that really science hasn't fully documented. Western science may not have documented those impacts, but as M.A. Kraft points out, Indigenous science has. The knowledge keepers and land users were saying uh, this is going to impact migration patterns and even calving areas within that territory. But does this type of thing make it into environmental assessments? Environmental assessments are crucial when it comes to developing a project, whether it goes ahead and what changes need to be made. And yet, even though the evidence shows hydropower projects impact Indigenous peoples and their land, how much of their input actually informs that decision-making? That's something Professor Kraft explores. She's an associate professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Ottawa, an internationally recognized expert in Indigenous laws, treaties, and water. I'm also a university research chair in Nibe Minawaki Nakangewan, which means uh, Indigenous governance in relationship with land and water. And it's a relationship with, not over, on, for. It's really about developing relationships of governance with and taking into account water and land. Professor Kraft got together with her colleague, Jill Blakely, at the University of Saskatchewan. Together, they wanted to look at Manitoba Hydro's Kiosk Dam and the network of 15 dams and transmission lines connecting to it. They gathered testimonials and combed through documents from public hearings held a decade ago by the Manitoba Clean Environment Commission. Then they wrote a book called In Our Backyard, 
Kiosk and the Legacy of Hydroelectric Development. Their goal? Amplify the voices of Indigenous stakeholders. Manitoba has always had hydroelectric development and very low rates for its own citizens. That's power rates. But this is really about a commercial interest and export. And it's not without cost. Hydro projects can create a lot of division in communities, even in families. Professor Kraft says sometimes Indigenous communities support hydro projects because there's a feeling these projects are going to happen anyway, so why not benefit from them? But this can be really risky. She points out the case of Kiosk, a project that's now billions over budget. The cost overrun of Kiosk has impacted the forecasting of potential profits and benefits. Benefit is a little bit further down the road. And when the water levels drop, like they did with last year's drought, that also affects any profits and returns Indigenous communities might get. But what about jobs? One of the things that was part of the kiosk negotiations was having jobs for local community members from the four First Nations. Just not high-paying jobs. A lot of the employment in community is the lower-paid unskilled labor. It is employment, but it's not necessarily the training up that uh, many had aspired to. And then there's what happens when tens of thousands of workers from all over the country, mostly men, descend on a remote community. It's been noted that in the construction of previous dams, and and it's been noted also in relation to uh, man camps for other industries, uh, that large construction camps can have uh, devastating social impacts. Here's an example. Fox Lake Cree Nation in northern Manitoba. There are detailed allegations going back to the 1960s of band members facing discrimination, racism, and physical and sexual abuse at the hands of hydro workers. Hydro workers who came to work on nearby projects. Yet, Manitoba Hydro only started keeping track of allegations and incidents like these a few years ago, around 2012. To Professor Kraft, this all speaks to a much deeper issue. In most Indigenous cultures, land has a female personification. Many of us have heard the concept or the language of Mother Earth, and that is really important in terms of how we develop that relationship with land and how we maintain it. One of the things that many of the knowledge keepers that I've worked with have reinforced is that what we're doing to land as a woman, you know, this extractive industry, exploitation, commodification, commercialization, that all of that is really a reflection of the permission that's given through colonial constructs to take, to violate land. You know, how that then carries over to sexualization of women and and sexual violence. Professor Kraft is quick to point out that mega-hydro projects are not going away anytime soon in Manitoba, and that hydro is almost part of Manitoba's identity. But what about the identity of Indigenous communities, their lands, and their livelihoods? In those early stages when a project is first proposed, when environmental effects are studied and mitigation plans developed, 
Shouldn't Indigenous voices have a much greater say? Those perspectives have to significantly inform the development of policy, corporate and government perspectives on what should be done for development to pass the the muster test and, and to kind of reframe these these ways of thinking about how we assess what is good development. These mega hydro projects may not be in our backyard, but they are in someone's, like Amy Norman's. From an Indigenous rights perspective, these mega dams create almost like sacrifice zones. So people are willing to sacrifice Indigenous peoples, whole entire cultures, for the benefit of, you know, say, the rest of the continent. Consumers might not even think about any of this when we flick on our light switches or when we charge our phones. But maybe we should start thinking about it. Why should listeners in New York and Massachusetts, why are their rights and their demand for electricity, why does that overrule my rights as an Indigenous woman up here? Why does electricity in the South valued more importantly than, you know, an entire culture? I'm Farah. This documentary and this episode of What About Water is supported by the Uproot Project. The Uproot Project is operationally and financially supported by Grist, its founding partner, a nonprofit independent media organization dedicated to telling stories of climate solutions and a just future. Uproot supports journalists of color who've been underrepresented in the journalism industry so they can tell stories like this one. If you'd like to learn more, check out uprootproject.org. Those are the voices of Amy Kraft and Amy Norman, along with producer Farah Akhtar. Indigenous communities often carry the biggest burden of hydro projects, like dams. That's a pattern our next guest has watched time and time again. Daniel McFarlane calls it hydraulic imperialism. He's an associate professor of environment and sustainability studies at Western Michigan University. He's written and edited numerous articles and books about dams in Canada, from Niagara Falls to the Churchill River. Daniel, welcome to What About Water. Thanks for having me. So we often celebrate when a mega dam is built. Like, hey, look at this amazing engineering prowess and technology. We can, we can tame a wild river. But as we've heard, dams have a really dark side for indigenous people who live where these developments are, don't they? Yes. Uh, dams are often built at sites, you know, flowing water rapids that are conducive to good dam sites. We're also conducive to important indigenous settlements. So that's part of the reason is they just happen to overlap. So hydraulic imperialism, what do you mean by that? Right. Well, other people have used the term as well, but in different contexts. So some of them are referring to, you know, colonial powers as in England, going to India or, or Africa. 
So that type of imperialism. I'm using it more in the sense within a nation. So the Canadian government, the American government, applying that type of imperialism to people within its own borders, in this case, indigenous people. So it's referring to the colonial treatment of indigenous peoples for the sake of hydraulic infrastructure, often dams, but you can have irrigation and other uh, purposes as well. And it's also about the, the imperialism of the the state or the government trying to exert its power and its control and its legitimacy through the building of these mega projects. It happens on several levels. On the one, on one level, it's actually taking their land that they live on or use for different life ways and resources. So when you're flooding out the upstream part uh, of a river, then you're going to actually be flooding their ter territory and taking it away from them. Then you're going to be placing them on government-controlled territory in most cases. So it's allowing them to, the government to then extend political control over how that community is resituated, where it's going to be, what type of eco economic activities it's going to have. I want to follow up um, on the dam building and the displacement, though. I'm kind of curious where these people, people go and who benefits from the power. So do the people who live near the dams or have had to move because of the dams, do they actually benefit from it? Do they get any of this hydropower? In most cases, no. Um, in fact, it's quite striking. There's some really glaring cases where, I mean, in the Niagara Falls case where, no, it just passes and goes to, you know, far, far away. Maybe even the white residents around don't always even get it because it's these high power transmission lines. An interesting U.S.-Canada comparison is the U.S. hasn't really built large dams since the 1960s, right? So it's because of that, it's in some ways stopped its hydraulic imperialism, at least its new cases. Whereas Canada has continued building larger and larger dams. So Canada is continuing this process. So with going to the north with the Peace River, you know, with the James Bay projects and, and things like that, it's gotten better. You know, there's, there's better processes in place for, you know, consulting with indigenous communities and environmental impact statements and things like that. So, Daniel, I want to ask you about Site C in British Columbia. For our listeners who might not know, this is going to be the most expensive dam in Canadian history. And I understand there's been a partial agreement in the case. Right. So that's an extremely large dam that's been in process on the Peace River in northern British Columbia. So uh, the First Nations community in that area had been going through the courts, heading to court. But as often happens in these cases, a settlement has been reached. So I guess this is an example of at least there is you know, compensation and some consideration for what happens for the First Nations community. But they were asking for the dam not to be built. So again, it's still going to happen. There's better treatment, but still certainly mm. hydraulic imperialism going on and that the dam's still going to be built. Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes compensation is a, a misnomer because there's really no compensation for the environment. Right. Well, you're trying to put cash value on, on non-monetary things. Daniel, one recent estimate says... More than 500 new dams are either being built or they're in the planning stages. Why do we have such a dependence on dams? Well, I mean, in some ways, it's because electricity is the magic elixir of modernity, I would say, right? Modernity is built on fossil fuels, but we can envision a future, or at least for some of us are trying to, without fossil fuel. No one's talking about a world without electricity. I don't think anyone's trying to conceive of that. So when you combine that need for that type of energy with, with of course, the good push for green energy, that explains, I think, a lot of the desire to build hydroelectric dams, but that also ignores many of the environmental and social impacts of, of, of what they can do. When we're talking about big dams, 
we often refer to the size and the scale of something like the Hoover Dam at Lake Mead in the United States, uh, which, you know, that was the sort of the gold standard, the biggest in the world for a while. But the Hoover Dam pales in comparison to what's being built in other parts of the world, doesn't it? Right. Well, it's extremely small now, actually, by, by large dam scales. It's, it's iconic because of its size and other political reasons, but also its architecture and curving lines explain some of why it's so iconic. But I mean, what was being built a few decades later was already dwarfing it in the 1950s and 1960s within North America. But now, and, you know, some of the world's larger dams are being built in northern Canada with, uh, you know, with Churchill Falls and, and James Bay projects. But even those are dwarfed again by what's going on in Africa, Brazil, China. As our technology advances, it's just whoever builds the next dam on a large river it tends to be the ones building the next biggest one. So the, the scale just keeps increasing. So when we build these huge dams... And, and even medium-sized dams by today's standards, we know there's huge changes to the rivers, the way the rivers flow, to the environment, upstream, downstream. What do we know about those regional changes that are happening? Right. Well, when you have a dam that blocks the entire course of a waterway, so not a run-of-the-river dam, but a full dam blocking the water course, you're going to have different scales of effects, which are the immediate from the construction phase, then the medium term from essentially changing a river into a lake where you have the reservoir and four bays. So changing the ecology of that water body, changing the water speed, the temperature, the chemistry, that's going to have all types of knock-on effects, of course, on plants, animals, what can grow in there, the pollution from building from different water speeds. And a lot of those things I've described, you know, were known back when dams were built 50 or 100 years ago, but we're just seen as, you know, the collateral damage that comes with building these sorts of things. But something that's become much more apparent recently is large reservoirs, actually because of all the flora and fauna that's going to collect at the bottom and slowly disintegrate is leaching methane, which of course is a very potent greenhouse gas, into the atmosphere. So in addition to the CO2 from the concrete, massive amounts of concrete that go into these dams. Yeah, turns yeah out I these do want to ask you, yeah, I do want to ask you about that. I'm sorry, go ahead. So there's, uh, but that that's more recent, I think, some of our knowledge of that, the, the, the methane part. But I mean, especially coastal dams on, on rivers going into ocean. So the blocking of Andromeda's fish, right? So indigenous cultures that are built around salmon or other types of spawning fish that come upstream. So that's been, that's a catastrophic impact on not only the ecology of that river, but for indigenous communities that have all these different life ways that would rely on that, not just food, but spiritual and cultural as well. So that's where at least the U.S. has been doing a better job of starting to remove dams rather than build new dams compared to Canada. So I have a couple of uh, other questions about the impacts uh, to uh, mercury and sediment. Right. So again, with, with blocking a river and its flow, again, from the types of processes that happen when you change a river essentially into a, you know, a placid type of lake, you're going to allow for mercury accumulation. So we've had that happen quite a bit. So in, say, the St. Lawrence example, um, which I've written a book about, so you have the, the downstream Mohawk communities have been experiencing a lot of problems with mercury contamination. It also, something that seems to go with dams is you're often building large polluting industries by them because they want to contract in bulk for that power. So that happened with the St. Lawrence case, happened with the Niagara cases where you had you know, aluminum plants and different things. So it tends to turn those downstream sections into 
Superfund sites in the U.S. and Mercury being one of the main culprits in that. So you know, I'm uh, my research. I dabble in uh, geodesy, which is the shape of the Earth. And I don't know, you may know this, but I, I'm not sure if our listeners do. When you look at dams collectively, um, and the amount of water that they store around the world, they actually change the rate of rotation of the Earth, which is called length of day, and they change the the axis of rotation, they cause it to wobble a little bit. Uh, I don't know if you ever thrown, like when you were a kid, like a waterlogged softball, and, you know, the water is distributed in a certain way that's unusual, right? And so you throw it, and it just spins in a different way, and it wobbles uh, it wobbles in a different way. And it's kind of what's happening with the Earth. We can measure that super, super accurately. That's kind of what actually was my lead into working with some of the gravity satellite work that I do was hearing about that from some of my some of my colleagues. Um, I want to go back to the concrete issue because, you know, dams, I don't think people realize just how much concrete, it's like millions and millions of cubic meters are required to build these big dams. And cement, which is a key ingredient in concrete, accounts for about 8% of the world's carbon dioxide emissions. So when we look at those mega dam projects, what kind of consequences do you see? Generally, when we're talking about mega dams, especially hydroelectric dams, you're talking about the need to have massive amounts of concrete. So the pouring of that, you know, a very long process for a big dam is going to just release gargantuan amounts of CO2 into the atmosphere, which of course is problematic for climate emissions and for climate change. The storing of the water, when you have decomposing plant material and things like that, that's going to slowly leach methane out. Methane of course, is much more potent as a greenhouse gas than as carbon dioxide. We're just not putting as much of it yet into the atmosphere. So that's why there's you know, more focus on, on carbon dioxide. It's two super powerful greenhouse gases, for sure. Then um, do we touch on evaporation, like re- how regional evaporation has increased in, in some of these areas with dams? I know, like, for example, the Salt River Project in Phoenix has uh, jacked up the humidity, not a lot, but, you know, a little humidity in an incredibly warm climate makes it terribly uncomfortable. Uh, Do you see this in other places? One of the examples from my research, 40,000 acres was flooded too, as part of the St. Lawrence Seaway and Power Project. So locals argued that changed the local microclimate. So the actual weather patterns in that region. And you could see how that would, could make sense from, you know, evaporation and, and transpiration rates of what that could do to local weather systems. Yeah, of of course. Sometimes I, I worry, and I wonder if you do too, when we see these big estimates of how we're damming up all these rivers. And for example, World Wildlife Fund did a study that showed that about two-thirds of the world's rivers are impeded by, by dams. So really affecting global stream flow. How much does that worry you? Well, that, that worries me tremendously because, you know, rivers are the lifeblood of, of the, the geography which they flow through. You know, we're talking enormous impacts. And I can understand the urgency because of the climate emergency that we're currently in. May we keep up the dams we've already built because at a certain point, you know, after 50 years, that reservoir has actually sort of adapted to being that, what's living in it has adapted to it. So in a way it's become partly natural. So it can have some negative effects to also just change it back to a free flowing river like it was before. Because of our need for clean electricity, maybe we keep up the dams we have, but I don't know if I'd build anymore. So that leads me to my to my last question. I mean, is there a more democratic, 
holistic solution to still having hydropower? Is it more smaller dams, or you think we should just move away? Given the urgency from a climate change perspective, I could see making a case for more run of the river, smaller microhydro dams that are done in a sensitive way ecologically and culturally. So ones that aren't going to block a river flow, create a reservoir, since that that full blocking and creation of a reservoir is usually the main environmental or leads to the main environmental and cultural impacts. But I mean, I think there's, they're not going to be free of repercussions, but it's sort of a calculus of whether those, those repercussions would be small enough vis-a-vis the, the energy problems that we're trying to solve. The only good upside of this is that there's a lot of important work that needs to be done. And uh, we want to thank you so much for joining us today, Daniel. Thank you so much for having me. Daniel McFarlane is an associate professor of environment and sustainability studies at Western Michigan University. For those indigenous peoples who find themselves fighting hydro projects in their backyards, it can be a painful and pricey fight. That's where Raven Trust comes in. It's an organization that raises money indigenous people can tap into to enforce their legal rights and title in protecting their traditional territories. We caught up with Anna Simeon earlier this summer. She's the former fundraising campaigns director at Raven Trust in Victoria, British Columbia. Raven is needed because the Canadian government, despite successive court actions, is making it very difficult for indigenous peoples enforce their rights, whether it comes to an unwanted project on their lands or for them to have title to their traditional lands. Instead of negotiating, they force them to go to court and these cases can cost so much. For example, for just a judicial review for an unwanted project, it can run into a million dollars. For a title case, it can be 10, 15 million dollars. And indigenous communities often deal with multiple challenges and so Money to defend their rights has to come out of a budget that's already strapped, that has to meet their housing needs, their health needs, clean water, all of those things. So the nations choose the lawyer, they choose a type of legal action, and then they come to us. We fundraise, we mobilize individuals and groups and communities to fundraise amongst their own networks helping that legal action move forward without it being too much of a burden on their community. That was Anna Simeon in Victoria, British Columbia. We're going to end the show with a song by Silver Wolf Band, an indigenous four-piece music group from Happy Valley Goose Bay in Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada. This is their song, A Thousand Years. play on the river like moonlight on the lops like an elder speaking the spirit never stops so ancient patient moving like the breeze drinking the water that's reflected Leaves for a thousand years, for a thousand years. 
used to speak to the river in words I'd understand. Then I kill my dinner and I'd eat it with my hands. Was so endless, relentless, was so restless and free. Respect for the water that's been so good to me for a thousand years. For a thousand. Of a wild land sewn together by the grace of a weathered hand, so cast off, signed off, and not ready to leave. Like the fading memories of. you've been listening to the episode and you have questions about something you hear on the show, send them to ideas at whataboutwater.org. We record and produce this podcast on Treaty 6 territory, the homeland of the First Nations and Métis people. 
A special shout-out to freelancer Daryl Din for helping us with today's episode. What About Water is a collaboration between the Walrus Lab and the Global Institute for Water Security at the University of Saskatchewan. This podcast is a production of Cascade Communications. Our audio engineer is Wayne Giesbrecht. Our producer is Aaron Stevens. Our fact-checker is Taisha Garvey. The crew at GIWS is Mark Ferguson, Sean Ahmed, Fred Rebin, Andrea Rowe, and Jesse Widow. I'm Jay Familietti. Thanks for listening.